the story of Gideon is uh, it's going to end up taking us a couple of mornings. So we'll, we'll go with Gideon today and we'll pick up the rest of the story of Gideon next week. He takes up, he takes up over 100 verses, I think. Poor little Shamgar only got one verse. And uh, the third judge, and here we come to, to Gideon, and he gets, he gets over 100 verses, two or three chapters. Um, so let's read Judges chapter 6. I know it's a, it's a long portion, but we want to we wanna keep reading through this book together. We're longing for the word of God to come alive in us, longing to engage with it really well. Um, Judges chapter 6, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. And whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern, Europe, eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for their tents for they did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. When the Israelites cried to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them from before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But Sir Gideon replied, If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? But Lord, Gideon, Gideon asked, How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Gideon replied, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went then, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so, and with the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. And Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord. He exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, don't be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the, to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands in Ophrah of the Bezrites and that same night, the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. 
but because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. And in the morning when the sun, when the men of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other who did this. And when they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die, because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jerobal, saying, let Baal contend with him because he broke down Baal's altar. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abizrites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. And Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that's, that, that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. And that night God did so. Only the fleece was dry and all the ground was covered with dew. Ah. There, there is, we could, there's so much we could grab and, uh, from, these, from these 40 verses of chapter 6. But I think there's maybe two or three things. I'll be as respectful of time as possible. Uh, there's two or three things that I'd love us to see uh, in the story of this story of Gideon. And uh, by now, by now we have become so weary, I think. We've become wearily familiar with the judges' cycle. Uh, again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's the cycle that has continued the whole way through the book, the whole way through the series. Uh, in some ways, the whole way through the scriptures, and the whole way through many of our stories, I'm sure, if we're being honest. But we've become wearily familiar with the judges' cycle. And uh, just by way of just by way of interest, I know there's some people that like to do a bit of cross-referencing. I am one of those people. And so, just for a moment, if there's some people want to know about who are these oppressors, the Midianites, part of me is part of me is stunned by their story. Because we're first introduced to Midian in Genesis 25. Abraham took for himself a wife, Keturah. He took for himself another wife, Keturah. And uh, she bore him sons. And one of them sons was Midian. And then we're we're introduced again to to Midian in in, uh, Exodus chapter 2. Moses is in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 2. And he he finds a place of welcome in the land of Midian. The priest of Midian takes him in and looks after him, takes care of him, allows him to be belong to family, and actually gives him his daughter Zipporah. And so the priest of Midian becomes the father-in-law of Moses, and 
And, uh, and then all of a sudden, it seems, I'm sure it's not all of a sudden, nothing usually is. But by the time we get to the end of Numbers, Numbers 22, 25, and 31, such hatred, such animosity between the children of Israel and the Midianites. And it's just, it's just crazy to me to look back and see the son of Abraham, the son, one of the sons of the, of the man of promise ends up becoming such an enemy to the, to the people of, of promise, I suppose. And so that's just by, by the way. But these Midianites, they were, they were relentless in their oppression. Relentless in their oppression. And they, they took everything. Anytime the crops began to grow, they, they ruined it, cleaned it out. Anytime the, the livestock began to, to grow so that the people could get get something to eat or, or whatever, they, 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 they killed them, they destroyed them, they destroyed everything. They were cruelly oppressing the Israelites. And what, what we've said right in week one, there is threads that we will pull out of the, this series the whole way through. One of them being that he relentlessly, God the Father relentlessly offers grace. He is relentlessly gracious. He is relentless in his mercy, relentless in his commitment to his people. We see that again in this story. We see the thread that we want to pull out the whole way through this series is that he wants all of you. He wants all of us. And the people of the children of Israel had, had, had learned to live with idols that coexisted. They, were co, they coexisted with the worship of God and the worship of idols. All along, God wants all of them, and it's still the same today. He wants all of you, longs for all of you. We see the need for continual spiritual renewal, and we see ultimately that we really need a true Savior. We need Jesus. There are threads that we want to pull out, and we'll see those, those threads again this morning. In verse 7 of, of chapter 6, the beginning of the verse starts out familiar. We've heard this before. The people cried out. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. He responded to their cry and sent them a deliverer, sent them one to rescue, sent them one to be their judge. But it's always interesting to me. I always, I always want to point out where, it's, where there's a difference, where there's a difference in the narrative. And, and here we see a difference in the narrative because this time, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and the, when the Lord, when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, this time He sends a prophet first. He sends them a prophet. And so, you'll, if you went back to the story of Othniel, the story of Ehud, the story of Deborah, that you'll you'll see that when they cried out, a deliverer was raised up. Here, they cried out, and a prophet was sent. I've, I've wrestled through this a bit this week. And I think it all started, actually, in part of my Bible reading was uh, Psalm 103 this week. In Psalm 103, it says that, that God, he made, his, he made his ways known to Moses and his deeds to the people. It just got me thinking about he, he, the people seen what he did, but Moses actually seen the why. And, here's, and here we, we have the, the gift of the prophet. 
not just what's going on, not just an, an automatic rescue, but they need to know why. And before the people are rescued, they need to know why they need rescued. And it's why the prophet is such a gift, and it's why we think the prophet is such a gift even for today. We want to know the why. We want to know what the heart of the Father is. We want to know what his heart is. And the Father's heart here, as it is now, is for true repentance. The Father's heart is for true repentance. See, before they are rescued, they need to know why they need rescued. See, we want, we want the immediate response. We become familiar with this cycle where they cry out to the Lord and he is so relentlessly gracious that he, that he sends a delivery, sends one to set them free, sends one to give them peace and, to, and to, to bring them back into who they were called to be. But here I think we see something of his heart for true repentance. See, I think Paul, Paul helps, helps us here, I think. He helps me anyway. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about godly repentance. He talks about godly repentance and worldly sorrow, or godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And he says, uh, verse 9 and 10, um, again, and this is in response. Paul is coming, and some of his stuff is, some of his stuff is strong. It's strong language that he uses. And he actually says, let me just go to it. He says that uh, he's aware of that. He's talking about how his letter had hurt them. I cause you sorrow by my letter, Second Corinthians 7, verse 8. I cause you sorrow by, by my letter. I did not regret it, though I did regret it. I say that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. But now I'm happy because you were made sorry and your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, so you are not harmed in any way. And verse 10 Take note of this. Verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See, there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference between regret and repentance. And for some of us in the room that are parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles, you'll probably get an idea that you'll probably know all too well that there is a difference between regret and repentance. I know there's times that I messed up when I was a child growing up. But so often I, my response was one of regret because I had sorrow over the consequences of my sin. But I probably still went and did the same thing again. House party, caught out, caught out having a house party. Can you believe it? It's confession time. Caught out, and I was really sorry. I was really sorry, but I was really sorry because of the consequences of my sin. Because if I had repented, if my repentance was real, there would have been true change. Because the next time mum and dad went on a mission trip or went on a holiday, I had another house party. My, my repentance was over the consequences of my sin. There was never true repentance. Oh, it's good to get that out there. Ooh, yes. Um, so regret. Regret is, mom and dad are all, know all too well. Regret is, is, is sorrow over the consequences of your sin. Regret is sorrow over consequences. Repentance produces real change. And I don't know, even when we were worshiping, felt like some of this word was just 
coming alive again this morning. Because that worldly sorrow, a worldly sorrow leaves us in a place of regret. Worldly sorrow leaves us in a place of regret. And do you know what that does? It keeps us self-loathing. Keeps us self-loathing. Keeps us in the past. Keeps us holding on to those things that we that we thought, that we've, that we've dealt with, that we've worked through, but all we've worked through is the consequences. We've never dealt with, never dealt with the things of the heart. See, repentance will move us, will remove all the regret about the past. Repentance produces real change. Repentance produces heart change. It moves us past. It removes the regret about the past. And I think another, another thing about regret is regret is all about us. See, see, regret is, it becomes all about me and my hurt and my broken heart. And I don't want to sound harsh this morning, but that's, that's that really what regret is. We're sorry because, because of the consequences of sin and we're, we're regretful because it's, bre- it's hurting me. It's breaking my heart. And for me, this is where I suppose... The rubber hits the road with the regret and repentance piece. Because repentance acknowledges that we've grieved him. Repentance acknowledges that we have broken his heart. And that's what Father is longing in this story. And that's why he sends a prophet. He sends a prophet and you can see even in what the prophet says. It's not, there's, it's not even riddled with condemnation. It's just reminding him, this is who I am. This is what I've done but you've not listened. And so he's so gracious in ascending of the, of the prophet. It's a gracious action. It's a gracious response from the Father because he's longing for true repentance. He's longing for them to remove, to, to move past the place of worldly sorrow, of worldly regret, and to get to this place of, oh God, we have broken your heart. Oh God, we have grieved you. It begins to produce real change. And so God sends the prophet. This is the first point. God sends the prophet so that they can move from regret to repentance. He sends the prophet so that they can move from regret to repentance. And as you read on through the story as we've done this morning, by the time it gets to, the Israelites have cried out and the Lord sends a prophet to the Israelites because they've cried out. But then we read on in verse, verse 30, around verse 30 and, Whenever the, the people come out and see that the, the Asherah pole and the altars of Baal have been destroyed, they're, they're, they want to kill the person that's done this. And so I read through that and goes, have they, have, did it even work? Have they even repented? And, and, and some of the story suggests maybe not, but his grace is relentless. His mercy is relentless. His commitment to his people is, is, is unfailing. And so while they were still unrepentant, he makes a plan to rescue. And I loved that this week. There's a thought of while they were still unrepentant, he makes a plan to rescue. And that's the story for each one of us. While we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. While we were still in our sin, Jesus came to save while we were still unrepentant, God made a plan to rescue us. And he does the same here. 
even when there seems no repentance, even when there seems that there's not much change taking place, he's so relentlessly gracious, so relentlessly loves his people that he makes a way. He makes a plan to rescue, and he does it through the person of Gideon. Gideon is our next judge. And you know, I uh, there's moments this week where I've, you know, in uh, James chapter 5, where James talking about Elijah, saying Elijah was a man just like us. Or there's a ver- I think some of our versions will say Elijah... Um, Elijah was a man with the same nature as we have, something along those lines. And I found myself, I found myself relating to what James is saying in the person of Gideon. I found myself thinking, Gideon, you are a man with a nature just like mine. There's times where I felt like that this week. As we get to, we get to um, verse eleven. And, I, and, and, I, and part of me feels sorry for Gideon because I don't think I've ever heard somebody preach on the story of Gideon and get to verse 11 and not completely make a mockery of him. We get to Gideon and we're like, he's, we almost laugh at him. He's, he, he's threshing wheat in the wine press. You don't thresh wheat in a wine press and, and we, we hammer Gideon. We make fun of him. He's such a wimp. He's so scared. He's so in fear of his life. And I and I and I'm listening to this story. And I'm reading some. I'm doing some other reading on what the Midianites were like, what the Midianites did. And it's no wonder that he went and he grabbed what little wheat that he had and went to wherever he could to keep out of sight of the Midianites. Gideon was looking for a feed. They were so oppressed. There was no food. There was nothing available for them. And he and so he goes in hiding. Where's the last place they're going to come and look for somebody that's preparing a meal that's in the wine press and Gideon's threshing wheat there. And so I know that he's, and maybe rightly so, some people will call him a wimp and they'll say that he's in, in fear. But sometimes as, I've, as, as I do when I'm going through a series, I find myself, I just find myself being consumed by their story. And, and, uh, and so everything was being cleaned out. The crops were being cleaned out. The the any livestock was being put to death. And so I think to myself, if I'm in a place where I've got a little bit of wheat and I can get something to eat, and I can maybe get something from my family, I'm going and I'm hiding and I'm going to thresh wheat in a wine press and I don't care what anybody says about it. Anyway, um, I'm defending him because he's a man with a nature like mine. There may be times in the next few points that I hope I don't contradict myself. It gets to verse 12, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And again, uh, we've heard this preached on before. And some will say that this is, this, is, this is God acknowledging the potential that he sees in Gideon. And I, and I believe that that's, that's right. I know there's others that say that the angel of the Lord is mocking him, that he's being sarcastic. I know well-respected people that believe that we are that side. I don't think it really matters, but I am on the side of he is acknowledging that there is something significant, there is potential in, in this, in Gideon. Verse 13, we, we, we see Gideon's reply to this comment, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I think we begin to get an insight. We, in Gideon's response, we begin to get an insight into the indifference and into the complacency 
and into the, this combined worship of God and idols that had uh, so marked this generation. A generation of indifference, of complacency. And so they have, they've become blind. They haven't even realized that their continual worship of idols, their continued um, worship of other gods could possibly be in any way contributed to the fact that, that, uh, that God is, is no longer with them. And I think Gideon's response shows how far they've removed themselves from the call of God in their lives. I want to talk about Gideon and identify myself with Gideon. I think there's times where, where the call of God, you'll be reminded of the call of God in your life. And you're going through a trial, you're going through a difficult period. And that can often be our response. Well, if the call of God was so real in my life, then why am I facing this? I loved Dean's honesty this morning as he, as he led us in that moment of just heartfelt honesty. And, and there's times where we're like that. God has called me, he's called me to the oppressed and to the widow and the orphan. But God, it doesn't feel like that. Are you serious? Now see what I'm having to deal with now. You not see what's going on in my life now. It seems like you have abandoned us. What about all the wonders? What about all the things that that happened when you brought us out of Egypt? It's become a distant memory. And it's so far, I think, this, the response of Gideon shows how far they've removed themselves from the call of God on their lives. But you know what I love about God? God doesn't get into debate. We love, for some reason, in the, in the church, especially in the West, we love a debate. We love to debate our point. And so there's some, there's some things that come up here that we think theologically, we're, how dare you get in? You can, how, do you, how can you say such a thing? And, but God shows us how to deal with those moments. He doesn't enter into debate. He just reminds him again. Gideon, go. Go. And he reminds me again, I'm sending you. And he reminds me again, I will be with you. See, Gideon, again, Gideon, something like me, there's times where I can't imagine beyond my own human resources. There's times where I struggle to imagine beyond my own human abilities. And I think Gideon was the same. He couldn't imagine beyond his, his circumstances. He couldn't imagine beyond the situation that he was in. And that's why he rejects the call. That's why he, he can't believe that anything that he's being told is possible. But God comes again and says, Go, I'm sending you. Go, I will be with you. And so Gideon, the thing about it is Gideon's potential is not enough. It's one thing for him to hear, to say... Here, the angel of the Lord said, hear him say, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. It's one thing to hear him say that. It's one thing for you to hear him say, you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're, a set, you're set apart. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. It's one thing to hear that. It's one thing to, to begin to understand the potential that is within each one of us, but potential is not enough. It needs to be combined with the knowledge of who sends us and who will be with us. I think it's a, it's a wonderful combination. When we begin to identify our potential, 
we begin to identify who it is that we are combined with the knowledge of who it is that sends us and who it is that goes with us. There's something powerful in that. There's something significant about that. That's what Jesus, is, I think it's why it's, it's when we get to the end of Matthew's gospel, we have the Great Commission. And Jesus pretty much does the same thing. You have all of this potential, disciples of God. You have all of this at your disposal, now go. And so all the potential of the disciples, all the potential of the early church is combined with the knowledge of who goes with them and who sends them. That's the case for each one of us today. Potential. We love it. We love that sort of language, unlock potential all over the place. But what we're wanting, we're wanting to push into that even further this morning and saying we want that combined afresh with the knowledge of who it is that goes with us and who it is that sends us. Go into all the world. We're being sent with this kingdom mandate to go into all of the world and and just transform it with the goodness and the power of God. For I am with you always. I'm with you always to the end of the age. Verse 22. Um, Gideon's nervous because he realizes, he eventually, finally realizes Gideon hasn't been sure who it is that he's talking to. Verse 17, he begins to get an idea of who it is. He tests and he asks for a sign and he's given a sign. Again, I'm familiar with Gideon's stalling technique. It's a good, Gideon's good at the stalling technique. And we can be familiar with that in Gideon as well. But he finally realizes who it is and he's, he's familiar enough with the story of God to think that he's going to die. Exodus 33, verse 20, says that no one may see my face and live. God says that no one may see my face and live. And so it's why the Lord comes and says, get in peace. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. There's so many parallels with Gideon and Moses. Again, if you just wanted to, to look into this and, and study a bit further, the, the parallels with Moses are, are quite significant to Moses and Gideon are in a place of hiding. They both go through places of self-doubt when they're being told that I am sending you to rescue my people. They both ask for signs. They both see him face to face. Surrender just to Gideon and and then he's told before, before you deal with the enemy on the outside, you're going to have to deal with the enemy that's among you. And so before he deals with the Midianites, he's to go back to the home of his family. He's to go back to the house of his dad. And he's really nervous about doing that. So he does it in the, in the night, does it in the middle of the night, and breaks down the Asherah pole, demolishes the altars of Baal. And I think that's an important lesson for us. Again, I've just felt the weight of that over this week before we before throwing off the enemies around you, you need to throw off the enemies among you. So before Gideon could throw off the enemies around them, he had to throw off the enemies that were among them. I just, this morning I was just reminded of Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read it. 
And this is, this is how we deal with the things, the enemy, I suppose, that is among us. Before we begin to, in some ways, to deal with that which is around us, each of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And so there's plenty in that. And rather than labor on that point, there's enough there that we begin to deal with the things that are among us because we can be so quickly to try and right the wrongs of this world whenever there's anger and jealousy and malice and unforgiveness all still remaining within the camp, all still remaining within us. Oh man, there's still loads I want to say, but let me just let me just wrap it up. Um, let me wrap it up by going to the last few verses, going to the fleece. There's some stuff around the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and we want to be in this place all about spirit and word. We want to elevate them both. We want to give them both the rightful place, uh, and I think it happens in this story. The word of the Lord was so significant to Gideon's ministry. The spirit of the Lord coming upon him was so significant to his ministry. But again, we get to this area of the fleece, and it feels like he's maybe hesitating. It feels like he's maybe trying to get out of the assignment. But this week, I, I found myself asking the question, well, if the fleece was so wrong, and again, I think there's some of us give Gideon a bit of a hard time. We give him a hard time over the fleece, this lack of faith, this absence of faith. But if it's so wrong, why does God respond? If it's that horrendous a thing to do, why does God respond. See, I think Gideon is beginning to know who this is. See, all he's heard is really is stories from his fathers, stories that have been told and passed down. And so he has an idea of who this is, but he's still unfamiliar with his nature. And I think that's what's going on with the fleece. I think he's just he's like wanting to get to terms with the nature of the one who is calling him, the one who is empowering him, the one who has chosen him. And so I don't think it's, um, it's, he's, he's acting in unbelief. I think it's hesitant, but it's not unbelieving. And see, the problem is that we, we need to work this out. We need this level of discernment because in Psalm 95, uh, in Psalm 95, the psalmist is condemning the people for asking for a sign. But whenever we get to Isaiah chapter 7, they are condemned because they didn't ask for a sign. And so there's a level of discernment needed when it comes to to working out when, when we do this, when we put a fleece out. But what I, I just want to finish with, with pointing us to, to Mark 9, verse 24. So we think through what Gideon was doing. And again, there's stuff that I want to say, but I'm so aware of time. And the response, whenever the, whenever the, the power of God was seen, was made evident, the response from the people was, I believe help me 
overcome my unbelief. And I think that's where Gideon found himself. And, that, and as we close, that's where I think maybe some of us are at. And so I've already said that who you are is a royal priesthood. Who you are is a chosen people. Who you are is the hope of the nations. Who you are is light of the world and salt of the earth. And there's part of us believe that. There's a part of us believe it, but there's a small part of it. Us is saying, help me overcome my unbelief. And so I'd love us just to stand. Do you mind all just standing? And just let me pray for us as I finish and the guys come back up. But if you're full of belief, should I actually should have put this out there first. If you're so full of belief that you don't need any unbelief overcome, maybe you should just, you can remain in your seats. But um, we're all in this place that we would die. Uh, as long and for true repentance for, for all of us. That true repentance is going to bring heart change. It's going to produce real change, dramatic change, I think, for some. And we begin to see some of the story of Gideon become familiar with some of the things that, that went on. We want to deal with some of the... We're asking you, we want you to deal with some of the things that are among you before we become so dogmatic about the things that are around us. And... And we just want to be familiar with his nature. God, we've seen glimpses of it. We've experienced and we've heard stories of who you are and what you've done. And I believe them. And I take hold of them. And it's why I worship you. It's why I love you. It's why I've said yes to you. And I believe it would you over- help me overcome my unbelief. And so, Holy Spirit, would you just do that as we bring our time to a close today? Thank you for already what you've just been longing to do in us. Thank you for what you've revealed through your people as they've been obedient to, to share your heart and to share what you're doing in the, their hearts. So God, I just pray that we'd be a people that would be courageous enough to wrestle with these things, bold enough to begin to have open ears to hear from heaven, open hearts to allow you to do a work that only you can do. God, open minds that would be uh, renewed and remolded as we look to Jesus as we look to Jesus fix our eyes on you, you're the true saviour you're the one that we really need you're the one that our hearts long for that our eyes are fixed on so we worship you and we say together, we say together that we believe that you help us overcome those areas of unbelief in Jesus name